I'm Jesse LeBlanc. I'm Kat Miller, and this is Vines and Wines. We created this podcast to share our favorite activity of discussing financial regulation while drinking wine. Each episode, we dive into the lessons learned from a recent disciplinary action. So grab a glass and let's dive in. Just a couple of quick disclaimers. Nothing we say here should be construed as legal advice. We're not lawyers. However, we do have collectively more than 30 years of experience in the industry. And while our opinions are our own, let us know if anything here resonates with you. We'd love to help you out. Lastly, we dive into cases to discuss the lessons learned and best practices. Nothing we say should be taken as being critical of the firm that is at the center of this case. So just thinking about last week, right? So we had a really great week in Charlotte at the BDA conference. It was awesome. But I'm kind of going back in my mind right now thinking about last week, Kat and I had a really good opportunity to drink some Snoop Dogg wine. And I just want to give a shout out to the Snoop Dogg wine. And I know you all know what I'm talking about because like you've seen it in the store. It's not half bad. Actually, we really did pretty much enjoy it. And it was really fitting. Uh, We were at our apartment um, we didn't have any wine glasses. I wish it took us forever to even find a bottle opener, but we got to sit on our patio and drink Snoop Dogg wine out of our pint glasses and just relax and enjoy. Also, listeners, Jesse and I love Snoop Dogg, so that was yeah. also pretty fun. So today, though, I am drinking, I'm breaking out of my shell a little bit here, and I've got a California Pinot. I am drinking a Bordeaux today. I've been actually on a Bordeaux kick for a while. So I love me some Bordeaux. Loving it. So just circling back a little bit on the BDA, Jesse and I did have an opportunity to go to Charlotte and attend the National BDA Conference for Fixed Income last week, and it was wonderful. Not only did we get to see some great friends that we haven't seen because we haven't been to a live event in three years, but also we were able to get some really great information, have some really great conversations, both in regards to our new company that we started, but also just talking about what's what's the pulse of the industry, what's happening. Right. I can't thank the BDA enough for, for putting on such a great event. And it's really one of those things where I think, you know, as much of a student of the industry as you and I both are, we just, we just eat it up. So it was great. Thank you. Thank you to the BDA. We look forward to your next event. The case that we want to discuss today was just brought by FINRA in early November 2022 against Wedbush Securities for issues relating to customer account statements and disclosure delivery failures. So from January 2013 to December 2018, the firm negligently misrepresented, that's a direct quote from the case, interesting wording, negligently misrepresented on monthly account statements, certain fixed income positions were in good standing and paying principal and interest when in fact these positions were in default. As a result of these failures, they had inaccurate account records for customer account statements. The firm also failed to establish and maintain a supervisory system designed to review the accuracy of the information on the account statements. Relatedly, though, from January 2010 to August 2020, the firm failed to deliver a variety of annual disclosure notices, including privacy notices, Rule 606 order execution disclosures, and margin disclosures. Also, in addition to that, a failure to establish and maintain a supervisory system designed to achieve compliance, including supervisory procedures, 
with the firm's obligation to deliver those annual notices. Because this particular incident impacted both corporate bonds and municipal bonds, there were really a lot of matching FINRA and MSRB rules. So for this episode, I won't give you all the alphabet soup and all the numbers, but I will just kind of review a couple common themes. If you want additional information on which rules are impacted, the AWC will be uh, attached to our episode notes. So a couple common themes will be firms are required to observe high standards of commercial honor and just and equitable principles of trade. Firms are required to maintain and preserve books and records. Firms are required to establish and maintain supervisory systems that are designated to achieve compliance with applicable security laws and regulations. And finally, the customer account statement rule. So there were two issues that we wanted to dive into for this case. The first related to data integrity, as well as just the general relationship between the clearing firm and correspondent firms and how they interact with one another. So for this particular AWC in this section, we're going to kind of talk a little bit first about the statements. So one of the issues in this case was that the firm was made aware of red flags by one of their correspondent firms, and they didn't follow up on those accordingly when it was brought to their attention. Yeah, so according to the AWC, a correspondent firm notified this clearing firm, who's also a broker-dealer, that there was an issue with defaulted bonds on statements back in 2016. Either way, does reference that they didn't do any research to identify if this was a systemic issue or not. And come to find out, it actually was a systemic issue, that this information was not being populated on the, on the account statements. Yeah, and more importantly... Or, or perhaps more alarmingly, they did not take steps to remediate this issue that was brought to their attention until December 2018, so more than two years later after it was brought to their attention. Now, I know that I have been a correspondent firm, and it is, it's hard and sometimes scary because you have a responsibility to make sure that all of your information is accurate. All of these rules apply to both the introducing brokerage firm and the clearing firm, but you have limited opportunities on getting things fixed when you do escalate items to your clearing firm. I'm glad you mentioned that, Kat, because I do want to just kind of highlight the fact that the responsibility to verify the integrity of your data and the accuracy of your data is the responsibility of both the correspondent firm and the clearing firm. It's not just the responsibility of your clearing firm. Yeah. And also clearing firms, just because I know that I was the biggest pest that they ever had. You have to also understand that so many times I had, when I called down to my clearing firm, they would tell me their compliance is a concern, not understanding the fact that I have my own compliance and due diligence that I'm required to do. Right. And if you are a clearing firm, the responsibility that you have to make sure that the data is accurate really is magnified, right? So even going above and beyond what we were just saying, yes, it's the correspondent firm's responsibility, of course, to monitor the integrity of their own data. But as a clearing firm, you just, you have a lot more responsibility to ensure that the accuracy of the data and the information that you're feeding to the correspondent firms is accurate. Absolutely. Think of how many people are depending on you, right? They can't flip the switches. They don't get to talk directly to the vendors. So you do have that additional integrity because you're, you sign the agreement that you're going to help support them. Right. But I think just going a step further, the data integrity piece, I think is really the one that we want to hammer home to firms. You have a responsibility to ensure that you are trusting, but verifying that you're data providers are giving you the right pieces of information. 
Something else to take into consideration, the enforcement referenced that the firm did not reasonably review the accuracy of account statements to customers for, for this specific time period. That led me to believe that they possibly didn't have a committee reviewing statements for accuracy, or if they did, it wasn't meeting kind of reasonable standards. Right. I think a committee is one of the things that we suggest in a lot of cases that if you aren't already thinking about some sort of a committee structure to review any of your documents, whether it's trade confirms, trade reporting data, whatever the, the case happens to be, committees are a good way to just try to solve that problem in a unified way, partially because it's not just one group or one person's responsibility to verify the validity of that information. Everybody should ensure that, that the right parties have a seat at the table. There's something I think it would be interesting, and, and it might be out there for some clearing firms. Clearing firms often have roundtables for just their correspondent firms, and this would be a really great topic for those roundtables. One of the items I was considering as I was reading through this is how does the statement vendor receive the information? And in a lot of times, it depends on who your back office system is, depends on who your statement vendor is. But many times the information is being sent down through a, a statement file and it's most likely collected from your firm's security master. If, for instance, your statement file is only sending down the security description, a lot of times that default to bond indicators may be in a different field. It's something worthwhile to take a look at what your actual statement file is sending down and make sure that you understand the mapping of that particular file. Right. You know, I think one of the things that really stuck out to me as I reread this case for probably the second or third time was that there was a sentence in there that said the firm did not have any system to verify that such information regarding the defaulted bonds was reflected in the system the firm used to maintain information about the securities held by customers. So I think just really honing in on that, while the case is very much about the customer account statements and the accuracy of the information in there, I think what Kat and I are really trying to hammer home is that, that this is really an issue of what is in your security master and how are you verifying the validity of that information. The policies and procedures related to customer account statement verification is important, but you also need to be thinking about what are your policies and procedures to verify the accuracy of the information in your security master. I've, I've been in this role. You've been in this role. We've all been there, but it was 38 QSUBs. That's both munis and corporate bonds. Like This is such a drop in the bucket that it's so easy to understand, again, how this firm missed it. Right. So I think this is a good opportunity just to transition to our second topic, which is really just vendor oversight. I think it's one that has gotten a lot of traction over the last several years, and FINRA certainly expects firms to have a good program to ensure that their vendors are doing not only what the firms are expecting them to do, but that firms understand what their vendors are actually contracted to do. Think about how many vendors are involved in just this particular piece, right? So if you're the correspondent firm, you have the clearing firm. If you're just the broker dealer, that's actually the clearing firm. You have your back office system that has all the data. You have the data provider, which would provide the security master information. You then are sending it over to a statement vendor. Like what, we're now at three, four vendors. And there's probably other scenarios that I just haven't brought up. When you're thinking about the mapping of it, are you expecting the vendor to have the information? Do you know what that vendor responsibility is? Because as I just listed, how many vendors are involved in just this one piece? Right. One of the things that really struck me in this case was that there was an implication that the firm 
was expected to forward the notices of default to the statement vendor to ensure that that information was provided on the statements, which I think that struck me for a couple of reasons. A, because does the firm know whether or not the vendor gets these already? Because I think in some cases, your statement vendor may get these on their own. They may have a DTC feed or something along those lines that could give that information to them themselves. So do they need it? Do they not? And if not, why not? The second question that it raises is, does the vendor have a process for identifying defaulted bonds, right? And I think you could ask this question about anything, but in this particular case, we'll just focus on the defaulted bonds piece. Do they have a process for identifying these? And if not, why not? And it's not that there's a right or a wrong answer to these questions. It's just the simple matter of fact that are you asking these questions? And do you know what the answer is for any of your vendors that you contract with? Absolutely. You can't expect that the vendor should just know this information. This very much could be that your your statement vendor just receives a file from you and according to the mapping process, the file accordingly. So this could be on you. Did you send them the information versus are you expecting them to just know the information? Those are conversations that you should really be having. One topic we haven't really breached just yet, though it is very much an issue in this case, has to do with the notices and the required disclosures that they expected this vendor to send out as well. But it would appear that there was an assumption made by the firm in question that because I sent them the required notices, that means they're going to get forwarded on to our clients. And that assumes that the vendor in this case knew that those needed to be forwarded on. Now, the case points out that the required disclosure notices were not sent out specifically to clients who had signed up for e-delivery. There are other clients for this firm that would have received paper statements. And it sounds like the way that the case is written, that those clients may have still received these required disclosure notices. It was really focused on those clients that had signed up for e-delivery who had not. So again, the assumption is that I have provided these notices to my vendor. I expect my vendor to provide these to all of my clients. And we assume that that is happening, but without the explicit ask of, are you providing them to my e-delivery clients as well? We can't make that assumption that that actually happened. The case did imply, though, that the firm had all the required disclosures available on their website. But I think potentially, and again, we're making some assumptions in this case, but the fact that they had them on their website, but they were not necessarily attached in the electronic delivery statements there's some implication that the firm may be assumed that that was adequate. And again, I think this case just confirms that that's not the case. Exactly. The delivery to a client isn't necessarily covered by the fact that it's on your website. Now, we do want to give kudos to the firm. When the firm did discover it, they did self-report. Right. I think that's important. And certainly, Kat and I have worked through various issues where self disclosure has been a topic of conversation. And I think it's worth just kind of identifying the fact that there is a lot of value in taking that approach and there's no shame, right? Like we all make mistakes. There's always a a reason why things maybe couldn't get done the way that you expected them to be. And I just, I I think that's a, that, that is a tool in a firm's arsenal that they need to make sure that they're considering. Absolutely. This could have just been an oversight in just the review and testing process. So the assumption that, hey, they're sending it out for the paper statements. We assume that they're sending it out for the electronic statements also. Or it could have been change of management. 
as you're listening to this or as you're reading to AWCAs or other enforcement actions, a great practice for firms to implement is to hop into the broker check and get more additional information. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh, I wonder what my firm does or I wonder what my vendor does, it's always a good idea when you read these to go cross-reference and see if this if their vendors are the same as yours because it most likely will be listed in their broker check industry relations. There's one other thing I want to call out in this case, and it's only because it's it's a little bit unique in the way that the language was written in the AWC. There's actually two things. One, I find it fascinating that Fenner used the words negligently misrepresented as they described the infraction. That's a very heavy implication. And I just find it interesting that that's the term that they used. I've not, I've not personally seen it in an AWC before. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to see it used again. So just something to think about. The other thing that I would call out, though, is that there was a there was an addendum. And I, I've probably seen this once or twice in AWCs, but the fact that they used it in this one, maybe not surprising, but interesting that it was used in this case. Within 90 days of the effective date of the AWC, a registered principal of the firm shall certify in writing that the firm's written supervisory procedures and supervisory system are reasonably designed to review the accuracy of account statements sent to customers and to achieve compliance with its obligations to deliver to customers annual privacy notices, margin disclosures, and order execution disclosures. That's very interesting to me because it puts an extra weighting on the fines and the penalties that were levied on this firm that now a senior principal who's very likely a compliance professional or somebody in a similar role has to certify that they're in compliance. So just identifying the fact that it seems like there's a few more tools in FINRA's toolbox that they're using to really hammer home the importance in these cases. Well, and what's scary about that particular statement is that it's, it, it is, it doesn't say that they're assuring that this particular situation has been fixed. It's in general that they're reviewing the accuracy of an account statement sent to clients. We understand when reading this that they didn't necessarily have the proper processes in place. So is this just saying, hey, now that you have a review, you're going to continue this? Or is it truly down to the accuracy? And the person that signed this and is taking on that ownership of it now has, if there's any inaccuracies, what does that mean? Right. Well, and just thinking about it, like that's, that's a, that's a big ask. Well, with any rule and regulation, any process and procedure, that is a big ask. When it comes to something like statements and you're thinking about the accuracy of that security description and how many QCIPs are out there, how do you put processes in place? That's the best question to think about. Well, it goes back to how does your firm test statements? Do you guys have a committee? Are you looking at these information? Do you have a checklist or to identify the, the most common things that you need to check and, and review? Are you going in as granular as looking for these little needles in the haystack, like defaulted bonds? Again, there's only 38 QCEPs during this time frame that were impacted. Yeah, it's a big, it's a tall order and it's a big ask for firms. And I think just knowing that this is where FINRA is kind of going with some of their enforcement actions, it's, it's worth taking note of that and trying to shape your policies and procedures accordingly. So just to summarize, the two issues that we covered in this case had to do with data integrity as well as the relationship between the clearing firm and correspondent firms. In particular, if you 
as a clearing firm, have a correspondent firm who brings up a red flag, it's important to follow up on that quickly and expeditiously. But more importantly, both the clearing firm and the correspondent firm have an obligation to ensure the data that you are receiving and putting on customer account statements, among other things, is accurate and valid and that you're taking undertaking a process to ensure that that's the case. The other issue in this case has to do with vendor oversight generally. Do you know the process or the procedures that is used by your vendors to obtain information, to provide information that goes on doc, important documents like customer account statements? Do you know how they're getting that information? Do you know what they're doing with that information? How are they verifying that information? And if you don't have an answer to those questions, you definitely need to look into that and make sure that your procedures are robust. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Lines & Lines is a part of Trade Lines, a consulting firm for broker-dealers and investment advisors with trading, operations, and compliance. Though these episodes are intended to be casual and a fun take on discussing regulation, our consultants are serious when it comes to helping you out.